This is Word on the Streets, a podcast about the Buttles and Indian Corridor Improvement Project. This podcast is created by the City of Midland, Michigan, and produced by the MCTV Network. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Word on the Streets, a podcast about information, updates, and perspective on the Buttles and Indian Corridor Improvement Project in Midland, Michigan. I'm your host, Katie Geyer, here with my co-host, Grant Marshall. Hi! So, we are recording this in the month of February, on Valentine's Day actually is when we're recording this, and since February is the month of love, this month is focusing on loving where you live. I think everyone has different reasons why we love our communities, why we love where we, we live, and a lot of that has to do with the feeling we get from the places and spaces around us. In local government, we're at least trying to be intentional about, about creating amenities and connections between places and people, um, and that's a concept that we are going to talk about today that a lot of people that listen to this podcast probably are already familiar with, and that's called placemaking. So Grant, I know you're pretty familiar with this entire concept. Can you explain a little bit more about what placemaking really is? I can, but before I answer that question, I have one question for you, Katie. Uh-oh. And that is, have you heard about the phrase, or have you heard the phrase, um, the grass is always greener on the other side? <laughs> I have. Okay. I have. But really, where is the grass always greener? Where you water it. Where you water it. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you to my inspirational calendar for reminding me of that. It's so true. And I think placemaking is something that you can really think about in terms of watering the grass Mm -hmm. or taking care of really any type of of vegetation or landscaping or garden. Um, You have to tend to it. You have to craft it. You have to um, be intentional about where you're locating things um, in order for them to do really well in different settings. And when you take that thought process and expand it completely across the entire city, it's very similar types of ideas and notions and intentionality around the decisions that you're making. Um, Project for Public Spaces defines placemaking as the strengthening of the connection between people and the places that they share. And so really it is a form of creating connection, but it's also a form of creating quality. It's a a form of creating um, variety and um, opportunity. Um, whether that be economic or health-based types of opportunities within a city. Um, It's it's that idea of really gardening um, an entire place in order to make it the best that it possibly can be for the people that live there. Okay. I I like that analogy, actually. And so the reason why I ask you to define that a little bit more. So this podcast was founded initially to talk about the Indian and Buttles improvement projects for that corridor. Um, But there was an article that we came across recently, I think, that really ties in kind of what the foundation of this podcast was and what we've been talking about Mm -hmm. with the concept that we're going to talk about today, which is placemaking and kind of what you just mentioned. Sure. Um, So if you head to our podcast website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash corridors, um, we're going to have a link there for this article as well as some information um, that we'll cover later on in the podcast and all of our listeners can go and check it out and read everything that we're talking about. Um, but this article is called, Why Do We Have to Handle 30,000 Trips a Day? And it's by Strong Towns President Charles Marone. Um, let's talk a little bit. I know, Grant, you read this article as well. So, so mm-hmm. kind of give people an overview of what the article is about and like what that, that title means. It's true. And so 
really the root of that title is about this idea of using a street to facilitate vehicle traffic um, and to get 30,000 trips in a day. So that could be 15,000 trips going one way and 15,000 trips going the other way for a total of 30,000 cars or 30,000 trips all made um, in that day. It's the, the way in which we've thought about streets for decades and decades um, in the U.S. and certainly in Michigan and very much in Midland. Mm-hmm. Um, we've always thought about a street as being something that facilitates cars as its primary function, mm-hmm. and which is interesting because it's not always been that way. Uh, there's been streets and there's been alleyways and other things that um, separate private space um, with public space in between. Um, but up until the early 1900s, um, there were no cars. Right. And it was maybe horses or um, buggies, um, streetcars, other things um, that facilitated people from place to place um, in those public spaces um, between private space. Um, and at the time, um, or at those times, city design was very different because you weren't necessarily consumed with how many could get through in one particular time throughout the day. You were really thinking about how can that street function for all of the users. Mm-hmm. Um, when you take decades and decades of thinking about just vehicle traffic, you you create cities that have been built and expanded and changed uh, for years and years that really function solely for that purpose. Um, and so the, the article itself kind of goes into this um, idea that um, while that may be extremely functional for vehicles, and being a driver myself, and maybe you, Katie, as a driver, it's a nice experience when you can drive quickly through a place sure. and get as efficiently or get fairly efficiently from one place to the other without having to sit in traffic or deal with those types of inconveniences. Um, but in order to have that kind of convenience, there is a trade-off mm-hmm. for the community. And that's um, something that's starting to be talked about more and more in not just Midland um, or not just us here in in our uh, studio. Um, It is very much a topic that's been discussed in a lot of urban planning circles, community circles, placemaking circles all over the world, where they do really want to recognize how can we create more value and more opportunity for other user groups in our streets um, in order to balance out the the overall design of the city. And... um, And that, I think, is very interesting because it shifts the focus and it shifts the paradigm from a street network based solely on vehicles to one that is actually understanding of it being the biggest public space in our entire city. Um, In fact, in Midland, if you you take um, all of our streets and you lay them out, um, all of the lane miles that we take care of, um, it's a very long drive. If it's a two-lane road, it could get you... Um, all the way into Missouri oh um, with gosh. how many streets we actually have in lane miles that we take care of in the city. And that is a massive public space that we don't always think about as public space sure. um, because we think of it as being just a place for um, for cars. And that is um, really what kind of the term of car-centric um, or motordom um, really kind of gets at is this understanding of, of being only prioritizing of one mode of transportation over others. Gotcha. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. So we have, I think, 233, 236-ish miles of street infrastructure in the city that we're caring for. 2,700 miles of, or excuse me, whoa, that would be a huge park. 2,700 acres of parkland, which Mm -hmm. if you add up the surrounding communities and combine all their park space, we still have more than all three other surrounding communities combined. But even that, if you convert it into square miles, it's only four square miles. Right. So... Truly, our street network is our largest piece of public space that we own, that we care for, and that really we have to utilize in mm-hmm. 
whatever way, you know, we think best fits the community. And I think as we've talked about on this podcast, having it only for cars or only safe for cars and not be able to use it for anything else, that's not very efficient, for one. Mm -hmm. And for two, is that really justifiable to make it only for the driving public, some of whom don't live here? Mm -hmm. Um, Are there other ways that we can use that public space and utilize it that's more efficient and also lends itself to better uh, quality of life initiatives here? Right. Well, and I think one thing to recognize, too, is that when we use the word efficient in this conversation, it really is relative to the idea of um, more of a holistic approach to users and the needs of people in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. it is um, certainly something that I think a lot of vehicle drivers say, um, well, what do you mean our streets aren't efficient? Right. Um, they're very efficient. Right. Um, and it's true. You can really drive through pretty much one quarter of Midland to the other in about 10 minutes. Um, that is a pretty high efficiency for a city that's over 36 square miles um, sure. in, in total area. Right. Um, but when we talk about efficiency, we are trying to make it a little bit more holistic in the way of understanding what the overall needs of the community are. And when you have a city built for just cars, you are only catering to the percent of the population that uh, either chooses to drive or can drive mm-hmm. um, or can afford to drive. Um, because as all of us know, um, with our pocketbooks, um, owning a vehicle and paying insurance and paying for gas, um, it's a pretty steep um, steep fee, yeah. um, especially if you want a car that's going to be reliable and take you from place to place. Sure. Um, and so I think um, when we talk about kind of terms of efficiency, I think it's really important to kind of recognize that. But I also think it's important to sort of understand why are we talking about this at all? Yeah. Um, what is the reason for talking about uh, complete streets versus streets that are designed from a motordom perspective or a car-centric perspective. And that really is, um, there's a lot of things you could talk about there. Um, you could talk about economic potential and undervalued economic spaces because of the roads that they're located next to. You could talk about um, means of um, equity within design. And again, that gets back to folks that maybe are marginalized because of the overall street design um, or are given very little opportunity to get from place to place because they can't um, or are unable to drive. Um, and so there's there's really a whole lot of rationale behind why we would want to start to approach city design and street design in a way that's a little bit more broad um, than simply focusing on just the, the automobile. Yeah. So we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the impacts that streets have on the neighborhoods that surround them. And certainly, especially in high-speed corridors, highways, um, where there's a lot of road noise, there's a lot of excessive speed that makes it not friendly towards non-motorized or pedestrian transportation, they uh, impact them very negatively. Um, Mm -hmm. So it seems like placemaking is more than just focusing on like an individual space, like one park, for example. That might be part of it. But the whole concept is looking at a holistic view of everything in the community or in that area that you're focusing on that contributes to the feeling that you're getting from being there. And streets are a large part of our community and of the feeling you get from being somewhere. I mean, you feel much differently on a neighborhood street where you have sidewalk space and it's 25 miles per hour mm-hmm. versus being let's say next to Bottles or Indian trying to walk on those sidewalks even though there's some separation there, same amount of outlaw mm-hmm. separation as there is on a neighborhood street. That experience is extremely different. It is. 
It is, and I think it's important to recognize, as you mentioned, that the impact to the neighborhood is is severe in a lot of cases. Um, and I think there's easily market um, understanding of of the chain of the excuse me of the uh, um, the impacts um, on neighborhood. Um, if you look at property values of houses that front on um, Eastman near downtown uh, versus those that maybe front on to Carpenter Street or front on to uh, West Park Avenue, mm-hmm. yeah. um, there is going to be a, an economic difference between the values of those streets because of the environment that they're immediately adjacent to. And um, and I think sometimes people think, well, if you're only going to pursue placemaking in certain areas, that's going to be to the detriment of other user groups that are using those um, for additional utility, which is getting them from place to place. And it's true. You have to balance the model out, which is the whole idea around complete streets. It's how can you properly balance the way that you're designing the streets in order to take in uh, consideration of the context and mm-hmm. the things that surround it um, without overwhelmingly um, changing the experience or the functionality of what the street was initially designed for. And that is something that was very extensively talked about in uh, the Buttles and Indian Corridor Improvement Project and then the Road Diet um, uh, trial that was also conducted and a lot of data that was was analyzed too. And I want to make mention too that in that particular case, a lot of times we did hear questions of, well, are you thinking about um, semis um, or sugar beet trucks um, mm-hmm. or other large vehicles that are going to traverse the corridor. Sure. And <clears throat> as a state jurisdiction like MDOT, um, and certainly as a city that wants to make sure that we are, in fact, creating a space for everyone, those were absolutely used. Um, now, is it going to be um, a little bit um, different for them to go through that corridor in the future once it's reconstructed, it absolutely will be. There will be a change. But the efficiency and their ability to get through is not going to be um, substantially impacted. Going through that corridor, I believe it was like 30 seconds or something like that to get from one side to the other, somewhere between 30 seconds mm-hmm. and 45 seconds. It was seconds. fast, yep. It was. <clears throat> now, rather than getting through in about 30 seconds, it may take 36 seconds. Um, but I think having an inconvenience, or if you perceive that to be an inconvenience, um, that would be something that would be okay for us to live with, knowing that you can achieve all these other community benefits that come along with designing it a little bit differently and slowing the vehicles down uh, to some extent. And so that's, um, <clears throat> that's I think, something that's really important as we talk about um, understanding how you can create more connection to a space is um, is really utilizing that intentional road design to create those other benefits um, within that particular area and that pocket of the community. It's also something that I know we're um, talking a lot about under City Modern Master Planning mm-hmm. um, because what we're hearing from a lot of people that have taken surveys or participated in our walking tours or have engaged in the process in a variety of other ways, um, they do talk about wanting to create um, improved places and quality of life around them. And uh, the city only has control over so much. Um, a lot of times we get accused of, well, why don't we have a Chick-fil-A or a Dave & Buster's or some of these other <laughs> right. um, kind of things as if we have control over that. And we really don't. Um, we set framework for how development can happen. Um, but we do have control over our public spaces and how we design them. And if there's ways that we can improve our street design in order to achieve improved quality of life opportunities for other people, um, that's a big win for our residents and for our businesses. And it can improve economic development and create value in places that it just has been either suppressed or um, undervalued for many, many years. Yeah. So I was I was going to ask this question, but I feel like we've already answered it. What the heck does 
this have to do with placemaking? What do streets have to do with placemaking? Uh, but you you brought up a great example. You know, does someone love where they live because there's a Chick-fil-A there? I mean, that might feed into some of that. But I will say I do love Chick-fil-A. So maybe, <laughs> yes, not to, not <laughs> okay, to fully maybe. put. Horrible, I, horrible no, no, no. reference. No, no, but it's, um, I think you're making a very good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah but. Are they more impacted by the fact that they might not have a Chick-fil-A or the fact that cars are going 60 miles an hour uh, right in front of their doorstep where their kids want to walk to school? I mean, when you think about that or when you want to walk to some of these other amenities or you want to bike or even your neighbor who doesn't have a car wants to walk to Kroger, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the trade-off, right? And is the trade-off you know, the six seconds that you might spend extra in your vehicle if you're a driver or having a safer space for the entire community, yourself included, um, to be able to traverse that corridor on foot or on bike or on a scooter, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I think a lot of it is about perspective um, and taking a step back from what we've done for decades, which is a car-centric approach. And and placemaking is a part of that. It creating is. that connection and creating those places and spaces that people want to be in. Mm-hmm. And when we slow the cars and we, you know, make these communities safer for everyone, um, that's when you really start to have a quality of place uh, kind of organically come out as a result of that. You, you really do. And I think maybe even to go back again to Chick-fil-A, not to zero in fully on, <laughs> on one franchise. I know um, certainly we could talk about other franchises too in this in this regard, but right. Um, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of times um, new businesses that are wanting to locate within a community, they are looking for a certain type of energy or a certain type of vibe uh, mm-hmm. that the community has that they want to partic- participate in. Um, if you drive past uh, vacant buildings and um, not very well-maintained parking lots um, or housing stock and the like, um, it doesn't create the kind of vibe that new um, folks are looking for if they want to choose to locate some of those franchises that do really pick and choose where they want to go to. Right. And so I think recognition, too, of improving um, our area and our design for our own people, it will have a natural additive um, of also improving how we're perceived and how we're understood as being a very good place and a community of choice for those play- people to come and to be able to live um, or be able to locate their business, um, which is hugely important for any community to be able to continue to be relevant and maintain um, that kind of energy that's going to draw new people and new businesses in. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think this is a great place to take a quick break. I know our guest in the next segment is going to have a lot of additional info related to this topic that we're talking about, a lot of great examples. So let's take a quick break and come right back with our guest, Richard Murphy. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of Word on the Streets. Today, we're talking about love, loving where you live, and how placemaking and quality of life initiatives play a key role in community success. Our guest today has a lot of experience when it comes to what it takes to help communities succeed. Currently, he serves as a Policy Research Labs Program Manager for the Michigan Municipal League. Prior to that, he's held roles including City Planner for the City of Solani. Programs Director for the Michigan Suburbs Alliance, and served on the Board of Directors of the Regional Transit Authority of Southeast Michigan. I'm excited to welcome Richard Murphy to our podcast today. Hi, Murph. Thank you for being here today. 
Hey, thanks for having me, even if I can't be there in person in your library basement. <laughs> well, we wish you were here in person, but having you digitally is the next best option, right? So before we get started, Murph, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do at the league. All right. So um, first off, the Michigan Municipal League is a membership organization. We're made up of about 530 local governments around the state of Michigan, uh, mostly cities and villages. We've got a handful of townships in there, too. Uh, and we were created in the 1890s to be a forum for local government to network, to learn from each other, and to advocate for their shared interests. And so those remain our core functions today. Um, my team here at the League, the Policy Research Labs, uh, picks up where we hear community needs that we don't already have good tools for, um, where it's more than just sort of knowledge sharing and peer learning, it's coming up with, with new things and next practices. So we uh, learn from our members what their needs are. We test out new approaches. We um, rip off and duplicate from wherever we can and uh, figure out what has the potential to work most broadly across our, our members, large and small. So I joined the league about eight years ago to support our place plans program, which was that uh, testing and learning iterative process on placemaking. Um, and since then, our team has looked at issues that range from adaptive reuse of historic structures to investment crowdfunding, um, autonomous vehicles, um, climate and uh, rising lake levels and catastrophic storms. Um, some of these issues that I know you have some experience yourselves with. Uh, but we were kind of shifting and learning as we hear new needs from people as to what our communities need. Wonderful. And the city of Midland is a member of the Michigan Municipal League, something that I think we found very, very beneficial over the years. So the league's tagline is literally about what we're talking about today. We love where you live. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means to you and how it relates to what you do there? Well, um, let me turn that back on you all first, if I can, um, and ask Katie and Grant, yeah. what do you love about where you live? What makes your neighborhood or your community great? Oh, man. Ooh, I like it when the, the guests ask questions. Okay, man, I, not being from Midland or even Michigan initially, um, I feel at home here probably for the first time in my entire life, childhood and adulthood. Um, I think we have a very strong community here and people who really want to do what's best for the community. That might not look the same to everyone, but at the end of the day, I feel like everyone has the common goal of wanting Midland to be a wonderful place. And that's really where I, especially in my role, has made it so easy for me to assimilate to the community because I feel like people just genuinely are here because they want to be here. Grant, what about you? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I definitely say people. Um, that's what's kept me uh, living here for over eight years now and um, really wanting to to dive into the to the work that we're doing. And you can't go very far without finding like-minded people um, that are either going to contribute or want to um, figure out ways to assist and um, take it to the next level. Um, I think that's a really exciting thing about Midland. I think also we have a really good budding coffee scene um, <laughs> and a lot do. of uh, – third place businesses that have popped up in the last few years, which do offer a lot more opportunity for social connections, um, in addition to a lot of the really good fabric of the city that's been built over the years, um, which includes lots of sidewalks, lots of parks, um, lots of recreational opportunities, and um, really great assets when it comes to um, community centers and 
pools and all of that type of stuff that kind of round out a good place to live. Yeah, yeah, that definitely builds that community feel, right? You want to feel like you're at home. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Murph, now it's your turn. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for me, some of the things that I love about where I live here in Ypsilanti is, yeah, I love walking my kids to school in the morning and watching birds as we cross over the Huron River. Um, it's having a lot of our um, day-to-day essentials within a, an easy walk of our house. Um, it's knowing the people at those places. It's when I walk into the um, the hardware store, I end up in a conversation with the owner about school fundraisers because her kids and mine go to school together. Right, um, right. Or the librarian who handles uh, social science titles um, recommends books to me because she knows that what I'm into. Um, or it's the neighbors who put together a, a socially distanced like front yard candy crawl um, in 2020 <laughs> for our street um, when we were all a little bit hesitant about traditional trick or treating. So it's it's yeah it's the people and it's the the places that we cross paths with each other. Um, and Michigan has. 10 million people across hundreds of communities. Um, and I think all of us have somewhat different needs, but a lot of overlap in wanting that human connection. Um, and the league wants all of our communities to be places that uh, you, the residents, love living in. And we want to make sure that our local government members have the tools that they need in order to support that human experience. Sure, that's wonderful. So speaking of that experience and some of the things that you guys have each talked about, we're talking about placemaking today, which a concept that both of you deal with quite regularly. So let's kick off with a little uh, conversation about what elements do you think make a place a quality place? Murph, let's start with you. Sure. So um, thinking about that, that place as human habitat, as the as the venue that people exist in and hopefully thrive in. Um, yeah, it's having buildings and streets that are designed at a human scale and that lets you get around and get where you need to go safely and have choices doing so. Um, it's access to nature, both green spaces and blue spaces of our, our water features. Um, it's having a healthy entrepreneurial environment that supports uh, those unique small businesses, um, the coffee scene and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's having your local arts and cultural celebrations, um, educational systems that offer lifelong learning, um, just all those elements that uh, come together in a space to let people thrive. Wonderful. Grant, What's mm. what do you think makes a place a quality place? You know, I would echo a lot of the things that Murph shared. I think it is important to recognize that the built environment um, is such a huge part of um, of creating place. Um, and I think too often we think of kind of the function of spaces and we forget that there's um, a lot of other things that need to be considered beyond function, but also just aesthetics and um, <clears throat> the ability to create the kind of outcomes that we're looking for. Um, whether that be health outcomes or social outcomes or um, environmental outcomes, I think that's that's also a big part of it. Um, I think a big piece of quality, which is subjective in mm-hmm. nature, sure, um, but it is really the ability for people to feel connected to the place that they live. And I think that that um, when you can really find out how people feel about the place that they live and um, and know that they they really value it and know that they really. Um, 
appreciate it um, I think and feel a, a sense of well-being or a connection relative to it I think that's really the the thing that you're looking for and re- really what defines the quality of the place yeah yeah wonderful all right yeah so Murph, you get the opportunity to work with communities all over the state and focus on some really, some really exciting topics. I'm interested to hear about some of your favorite placemaking projects uh, that you've seen around Michigan or maybe even outside of Michigan. Are there a few examples you can provide? Sure. So um, it is one of the, the great parts of working for the league is that we get to work all over the state and um, see Michigan's places large and small. Um, you know, a couple of the places that we've worked directly in uh, through that place plans process. Um, Allegan was one of the first place plans um, guinea pigs that that stepped up to be a part of that. Uh, they're a small town between Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids and Holland on the, the west side. Uh, and they had a downtown that's right on the Kalamazoo River. But like a lot of our historical communities, um, everything had its back to the river. Um, so their primary river frontage downtown was a parking lot um, so that cars could have a really great view while they waited for their their people to need them. Um, but Allegan decided that they had plenty of parking downtown and not enough of that, that gathering space downtown. Sure. So uh, they asked us for help and we teamed up with a, a group at the Michigan State University to work through a community visioning and design process with them and shift some of that space um, towards more of a, a central plaza um, with trail connections along the river and an event space. Um, and even they have a company in town that does uh, like ropes courses and outdoor um, activity centers. Um, so hmm. pulled them in to uh, erect a zip line across the, the river there. So I'm um, just one of those things of like, we have this business in town um, why don't we highlight their work right downtown in our, our river? So um, cool. they also, as part of that process, said, uh, hey, you know, our farmer's market is currently out in a parking lot at the edge of town. Um, let's bring it right downtown, put it on the main street there so that the foot traffic the farmer's market brings in can support the, the local businesses around it. Um, so some of that, like smushing things together so that they can support each other, as well as making space um, to have that interaction happen in. Um, Cadillac is another one where they looked at some of their underutilized space downtown and said, um, you know, we have this, this parking lot right on the lake, um, that only really fills up a couple of times a year. Let's see if we can reorganize that a little bit, still maintain enough parking, but also create, um, both a full-time permanent plaza space. Um, they've got like fire pits and so forth so that they can be kind of a year round space. Um, but also make it so as a place we can can um, turn into a, a festival space when we need it for events downtown and um, really make it flexible so that it serves both the day-to-day needs and the special event needs. So some of those projects where we're looking at what space communities already have and saying, how could this suit us better? How can this serve more of our needs at the same time or more of our needs across time? Sure. And and I think we have a pretty unique setup in Michigan, especially where we have a lot of these nice natural elements that just lend themselves to great placemaking like right off the bat. For example, we have the Titabawassee River in Midland. Um, Right now, it it kind of is as you described as Allegan right prior to doing their placemaking initiatives. 
but I know that we're looking at something as something the DDA is going to be working on as a riverfront plan. Um, and we've got a lot of great elements. You know, Cadillac has a beautiful lake up there. Um, and that really, I don't want to say makes placemaking easier because, you know, there are some elements that go into everything no matter where you live. But I mm-hmm. think in Michigan we have a pretty unique setup in that we can play off some of those natural elements and really improve um, the quality of place as we're, we're making some changes to those areas. Absolutely. And I think the things you highlighted, Murph, make a lot of sense to really try and connect sort of a broader vision um, to maybe uh, current needs um, day to day. Um, I, I liked your description of wanting to change um, vehicles, having a very nice view of the river uh, to be <laughs> okay. something that then people could um, participate in. Because I think um, too often we forget that um, when you plan for cars versus planning for people, you do get very different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can add the element in of how you balance it a little bit more, maybe more to your example about Cadillac, which was mm-hmm. how can you how can you balance that out a little bit more and make it a little bit more uh, functioning for both user groups, um, you can get some pretty terrific outcomes. Um, and it takes vision, which is a really um, wonderful thing uh, to be able to try and, and harness um, in a community to see what the local needs are, what the local environment is or geographic features, and how can you tie it together to make it something then um, greater than what it is currently. Yeah. So, Grant, yeah. what's an example of a, a placemaking uh, project that you've seen around the state or somewhere else that you Sure, like? sure. You know, that's a very good question. So, uh, it, you know, I would think um, – some of the really fantastic things are um, even as simple as fire pits. Um, and that's one thing I know I, I want to say, mention, mention, because I know it's something that's new in Midland. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we have two fire pits downtown. Um, I know Holland was an inspiration um, in the design of those fire pits. It now makes, I think you mentioned Murph, it was Cadillac that did, um, getting a head right. nod. Yep, Cadillac yeah. that, that got the, uh, um, the fire pits that went in as well. Um, but downtown Holland is a place that I've spent um, mm. quite a bit of time, and I think when you do go there and you see people in different times of the year um, gathering around something as nice as a fire pit, um, you really do see um, a very close connection. Um, and it's something very different that you get in that type of a space in the downtown than it would be if you were out, say, shopping at a big box store um, or on US 31 um, in in Holland or outside of Holland. Right. Um, you don't get that kind of quaint, close, human scale type of, of design. Um, so I think I would say fire pits um, because I think sometimes they're they're a little underrated. <laughs> right, and, and definitely for Michigan, where you know, we have a fair amount of winter, yeah, um, it's important to think about things that do work in cold weather and not just in you know, June and September when it's lovely out. Like, how do we how do we not just hide from the winter, but actually yep. enjoy some of that as part of our um, our uh, natural environment that we have to work with here. Yes, I I was just going to bring that up too. Uh, Fire pits are something that are multi-seasonal. And when we have all four seasons, sometimes all in the span of a week here, Mm -hmm. um, it's something that we have to plan for. So I know like when we um, set up the festival streets downtown, we have an ice sculpture garden that's going to be coming this this Friday, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that lends itself to events year round, mm-hmm. um, even when we don't have the pedestrian plazas in place and we don't mm-hmm. have that street closed all the time. It's still easy for people to come in and out, host events even on the sidewalks because they're a lot larger now. They don't have to just be used for outdoor dining in the summer. We've got all kinds of options that we can use now. So um, really important as we have a multi seasonal 
event schedule ahead of us that we, we start to think about that. Yeah. You know, and one thing I'd add to kind of to your point is um, I think there's so much opportunity there of how we can start to embrace a little bit more of the climate that we live in um, mm-hmm. and how that can be a huge part of connecting into space um, and places a little bit differently than maybe what we always kind of assume them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you mentioned our um, ice sculpture uh, ice sculpture festival that's coming up, mm-hmm. which is going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Frankenmuth has a lot of success in the one that they do, um, and that's a really cool place-making event when you go there and you see um, the parking lots that they've turned into temporary um, ice, sculpting, ice sculpting and snow sculpting venues, and the crowds and crowds of people that, that flow through there to see the talent that's local. Um, to go international, Copenhagen uh, in Denmark right now has a light festival oh. um, that's very popular. Um, they're a little bit further north than we are, um, and uh, which means even less um, daylight uh, throughout the day. Um, but a light festival and really unique ways of, of creating light with different mediums. Um, what a cool thing to do to bring people out uh, to explore their city um, and also be able to take in some of the work of local artists. I think that's a, a really cool thing um and sort of a place making type of approach um from an international perspective too sure yeah so we talked a little bit in our first segment about how street infrastructure is really the largest public space that many communities have Uh, murph i'm interested to hear your take on this can place making concepts be applied to road design and if they can what does that look like right absolutely and i think um probably grant has more to say about the example of downtown Midlands, you have uh, Main Street, I believe, a couple of blocks of it set up as a festival street Mm -hmm. where it's um, fairly level grade um, and flexible as to you can you can turn it into um, a pedestrian only space or a a car and pedestrian space. Um, You know, Hudsonville uh, rebuilt a street through their downtown very similarly um, as a as a Woonerf. It's a Dutch term, I think. Uh, for a street that's shared all the time. So it's built for very low-speed car traffic as well as pedestrian traffic. Um, Going past there, uh, Terra Square, which is a farmer's market and co-working and event space, um, and some new retail development that they have downtown, uh, really trying to rebuild some of their uh, traditional downtown fabric that they lost over a few decades of shifting towards car fabric. And, sure. Uh, yeah, that's a project that the league gave one of our community excellence awards to um, a few years back for, for rethinking their space. Nice. Um, yeah, in, in Kalamazoo, uh, we worked with um, the city there as well as Kalamazoo Valley Community College and um, Bronson Hospital, um, who looked at uh, Portage Street as um, this traditional neighborhood road that had been expanded over time with more lanes to uh, really squish the sidewalks up against the, the building fronts on either side and just carry cars in and out of downtown as fast as possible. Sure. Um, and it was really the community college that said, look, this is our front door and we are building a, um, a healthy living facility here with our um, our food processing and culinary arts and um, like nursing and paramedic programs, uh, could we make this street be a little bit better reflection of what we're trying to do um, in our healthy living campus? Um, so we worked with the, the city to say, okay, the streets due for uh, rebuilding in a few years out. Um, can we pilot some short-term 
let's just restripe it and change the signals for a few years to test out how it goes. Um, pull back some of the traffic away from the buildings so that the sidewalks are a little bit more comfortable to walk on. Um, and yeah, use that extra space for um, either bike lanes where they're missing connections in the network or some extra parking spaces in places where bikes already have adequate options. Um, just as a like temporary thing, you know, just mill off the old stripes and put down new ones and make sure it works. And um, it, it worked. And I think their, their permanent plan is to rebuild it with the, the wider sidewalks and the more permanent um, bike lanes and parking areas. Uh, but some of that experimentation to see um, there are, there are engineering metrics as to maybe what certain priorities you would tell us to do, but then there's the other priorities that we also have that maybe aren't connect, aren't captured in level of service metrics. And we have some room to make decisions there and set our priorities and um, test some things out to see what works best for all of our priorities. Yeah. Sure. That's something that, that we've talked about today and something that I know we went through the entire road diet trial with Buttle Street mm -hmm. talking a lot about that. You know, we're handling level of service. We're continuing to handle level of service that MDOT expects. So how do we change that to where it's a more open and aesthetically pleasing and, and safer place for some other people to use it beyond just those vehicle metrics? Such a good point. Well, and I think sometimes, too, you can realize that there's capacity within the street to still deliver a good vehicle level of service or traffic level of service, and then you can use that excess capacity to trade it off for the other things that you're wanting to achieve based off of community desires, which that, that Portage um, Road example in Kalamazoo sounds like a terrific um, way of, of leading a conversation and, and being able to achieve um, what stakeholders and, and the community was, was looking for, while sure. not um, grossly... Um, changing the uh, uh, the way of a, a driver's ability to get through there. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and speaking of um, downtown streets, streetscape renovation, you know, that project was transformational in a, in a wide variety of ways, beyond just aesthetics and the way that it looks, but also in the way that Main Street kind of functions now. You remember we took out the stoplights and put in four-way stops or all-way stops, um, you know, which is – drastically changed the way in which motorists and pedestrians behave in that area. Um, we now have the festival streets and um, par parallel parking versus angled parking, which again um, provides more livable space for people versus cars. Mm -hmm. Also makes it quite a bit safer for motorists coming out of there versus um, backing out of an angled space. Um, we now have three blocks where people can just parallel park and there's a lot more opportunity for them to be able to see one another mm -hmm. um, in addition to have that additional space. Um, but there's all kinds of other amenities that we now have the opportunity to utilize. Like you said, those fire pits that we have now. We have some pergolas downtown. We have just mm -hmm. gathering spaces for people to just go do people -y things. You know, if, if you have that reserved yeah. for cars, those cars aren't doing a whole lot. They're just sitting there. And, and it goes to your point that both of you have made, like, are there some potential trade-offs that really aren't trade-offs because they're improving the quality of life of people that live in those communities? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think um, recognizing that while maybe putting a new curb and gutter is an expensive process that you don't want to do all that often, you want to do it once and have it be done for a couple of decades. Um, managing how the space is used and doing some of those um, 
temporary adjustments or trying things out, saying, do we need this parking space or can we extend seating for that restaurant there? Um, or can we, can we be flexible with how we're thinking about that space is important. And so keeping, keeping an open mind that uh, just because we're not changing the concrete or the, the pavement right now, we can still adapt. And I think we saw a lot of communities um, looking at their downtown street infrastructure with new eyes during COVID and suddenly saying, oh, we need, we need a lot more um, 15 minute pickup parking spaces and a lot fewer park all day parking spaces. So let's just make that happen. Um, or we need more outdoor seating because people don't wanna sit inside a restaurant as much anymore. So um, just being, being flexible and trying to be nimble um, and not just look at everything in a, an infrastructure uh, sense, but also in a space management sense. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So this kind of leads into my next question. So, you know, we've seen an extensive amount of investment and activity increase in downtown since the streetscape renovation. We've seen over 80 million in the last five to seven years since that project has happened. Murph, what's your take on how placemaking impacts local economic development? You've kind of already talked about it, but, um, you know, what other opportunities are there? Yeah, we we did work with uh, public sector consultants. Um few years back to do a, a review of uh, various studies on um, aspects of placemaking and some of the economic impacts. Um, I won't go into all the numbers. Um, I will share a link that you can include in the show notes. Perfect. Um, but generally, we saw that a lot of those factors that, um, that create good quality place um, cause uh, housing values to go up. Um, they cause people to want to move in, so they support uh, population growth. Uh, you know, those people moving in is a, um, it, we can think of it as talent attraction. Mm -hmm. So it's um, customers for businesses, mm -hmm. it's employees for uh, employers. And especially if you think about people who uh, are fresh out of college, they don't have a family yet, they're a little bit more flexible in their choice of where to live um, and can pick up and move communities more easily. Um, those are often the same like college graduates that we have some of our anchor employers really looking to hire. So um, we can see a lot of those metrics go up um, in, a, in a positive economic direction. Uh, we also see that some of that, um, you know, putting things close together and bringing people together in um, pedestrian oriented spaces or at least allowing pedestrian or bicycle oriented spaces in addition to cars uses less land um, and less infrastructure per capita or per job. So it's a more efficient use of uh, public resources to provide those things. So we're bringing down some of the public costs, even while we're pushing up some of those economic metrics when we do good placemaking. Sure. Yeah, that's all very, very good points. Um, and, and really a really um, kind of holistic way of looking at these these efforts. Um, sure, we are trying to increase the quality of, of the place and how well people feel connected to it. Um, but there's also the the very clear uh, quantitative um, metrics that can be um, improved and and certainly economic potential that can be uh, increased. But and I'm glad to hear you talk about other forms of, of transportation too, Murph, because I think um, sometimes um, in sort of car dominated places like Midland or other parts of the, the state, um, there's sort of a, a reluctancy to really recognize the value that gets created when you are designing places that can accommodate other forms of transportation. And one thing we saw in the last year was um, 
the use of a scooter share system by Bird um, mm-hmm, here yep. in Midland. Um, that got a lot of, of new people downtown. It got new people all over the city in different areas. Um, and then just encouraged people to use a space a lot differently than maybe they had previously. Um, you saw a few um, electric uh, scooters uh, that were just private around town. Um, mm-hmm. But to be able to experience your city on an electric scooter that was easily accessible just via an app um, on a phone, um, accessible for, for most people, or lots of people rather, um, is a whole different way of being able to experience your city and could very much create even more interest or appreciation for that place. Um, <clears throat> and there's so much opportunity um, when you start to get people to do things a little bit differently than, than maybe they've always have um, in order to understand things a little bit differently. Sure. And, and as we're talking about this, I've been thinking about this as well. People probably don't consider locally the Pear Marquette Rail Trail to be a placemaking initiative, but it really is because mm-hmm. that used to be a railroad. That railroad doesn't come through here any longer, doesn't really exist anymore. Um, so we could have just left that as a vacant railroad. But instead, thinking about that form versus function type of thing, just because it's there doesn't mean it has to always do exactly what it was designed to do. There's a lot of other applications that you can make for that. So, you know, changing that outdated or abandoned infrastructure and creating an amenity, a place where people can gather and, you know, as we know, that it, there's no electric or motorized transportation allowed on that rail trail. So we have places people can walk. You can bike from downtown all the way out to Cottage Creamery to get some ice cream and just totally negate all the calories that you burned. That might just be a personal anecdote. But, um, <laughs> you know, you think about that. It's free to use. Right. But in turn, that's also an economic driver for our community. I know I get a lot of social media messages from people or photo tags on Instagram, um, managing the social media Mm. channels for the city. People come from all over the state to bike the rail trail. They come from all over the country to ride their bike across the Tridge, ride on the rail trail, take the whole scenic route there and back all the way to Claire and back. And even brings people from other local communities that just want to do that on a Saturday afternoon. And those people, in turn, they eat at our restaurants. They grab a drink at one of our local convenience stores. They might even stay in the hotel if they're traveling mm-hmm. around the country, you know, biking on different trails, things like that. And at the end of the day, people, that's all it takes to build a connection to say, you know what, maybe, like Murph said, if someone works remote and they're not tied to their community, they might say, I really want to live here. Mm-hmm. I could do this every single day. Mm-hmm. And that's a great opportunity for us to drive economic development and talent attraction through something that is free for people to use every day. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's all very good points. And you're right, I think um, certainly we talk about the rail trail probably over the years as a quality of life amenity, um, but really quality of life amenities are what, if you add them up together, uh, really create that that place um, to be as unique or as special as it, as it can be. Right. Um, one other thing that I think... Um, <clears throat> Midland uh, tends to do fairly well is actually engage both public and private um, organizations um, in a way that can lead to um, some pretty exciting things and improvements in public space. So to kind of shift gears maybe a little bit, um, Murph, if I can go back to you to ask you this question, um, what do you think are some methods that communities um, and specifically local governments can use to encourage private sector, uh, the private sector to include placemaking um, in their own space? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I mentioned in Kalamazoo, the community college and the hospital, both engaging in the, the process of like 
really pushing some of the conversation about what are our streets for and how are we letting people get to and from ourselves as destinations. Um, you know, those, those major anchors, the, the educational or medical facilities or, um, or major employers often have facilities staff who have their own professional expertise that they can contribute to some of these conversations, um, as well as oftentimes those, um, those anchors have uh, underused land that uh, if they can put it into an active use and have potentially someone else do the programming and maintenance of it, it's one less thing for them to worry about. Um, so Jackson is another downtown that we've seen this work well in with uh, consumers power there. Um, so built a new headquarters uh, in downtown Jackson, right at the end of the, the main street there. Uh, and so had a few buildings and lots left over that they weren't using anymore. So some of that they turned over to the city to use as, um, as a, a central park and plaza area. Um, some of that uh, was made available for developers that um, consumers and the city and some of the other anchors coordinated to figure out what is the housing that we need downtown? What options are we missing? Um, whether that's for new employees that the anchors are trying to attract to town, like what are their housing needs? Or maybe some of it is uh, sort of short-term corporate um, stays for, for uh, visitors or consultants coming in to work with, with consumers or whatnot. Um, and how can they attract developers to fulfill those needs in the downtown? Um, and then one that uh, my teammate, uh, Melissa Milton-Pung, has been working with them on is the old Hayes Hotel, which is a historic, uh, just beautiful brick court hotel from the, the 1910s or 20s. Um, was part of consumers' older campus, um, but they really wanted to to make sure that that as a historic landmark in downtown was, was taken care of and given a new life. So they've been partnering with the city to say, um, what can we do with this? How can we position it uh, in front of the right developers to really make something happen there? So you know, engaging the private sector in what are their needs and how can they work together to bring their skills and their expertise together with the city's abilities to, to meet some of those needs. Um, in other cases, though, it's just uh, letting it happen and getting out of the way of um, those private sector interests, um, the residents and businesses wanting to do things. So, again, looking to Jackson, they have their um, their Bright Walls mural projects that yeah. they've done a few years running now, where you know, a few residents decided, like, we really need more public art downtown. Let's put together a, a mural competition and attracted muralists from all over the world to um, paint blank sides of buildings and um, like the backs of buildings that overlooked uh, kind of dark alleys or parking lots are now these amazing murals that um, like I take my family to, to go walk through back alleys of downtown Jackson and, and just see the murals and you know, yeah. stop in at the restaurants and whatnot while we're there. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about parking uh, a few times. Um, that's another place where, you know, for decades, um, we have really focused our zoning ordinances on requiring developers and businesses to build a lot of parking. And oftentimes we're requiring them to build more parking than they actually need. Mm -hmm. So if we dial back and say, look, we're going to let you 
figure out um, a little more what your own parking needs are. Um, you know, that's maybe you and your business plan and your um, your bank figuring out what your customers actually need. Yeah. Um, we'll let you use that other space, uh, not for required parking, but then it's empty, but you can use that for green amenities or outdoor seating or things like that. And some of that parking that you already have built because we made you build it, um, we're going to give you permission to convert that into other things. Um, yeah. So, you know, looking at places where, um, you know, something was built with front yard parking backing onto the street. Um, now maybe they're allowed to convert that into uh, outdoor seating for a restaurant or a place to put a food truck in order to bring more people in. Um, you know, there's a, a, a little brew pub in Depot Town here in Ypsilanti that doesn't serve food, but they bring in food trucks every weekend to their parking lot um, to serve the beer garden. And they just don't have any more front yard parking because they've, they've turned it all into this active space. Those are great examples. Yeah. I, I like that you said get out of the way a little bit too because sometimes that's really what it takes. Um, you know, we have a master plan in place. Most communities do. And we know what the vision we want for those different areas and, and the different amenities. And sometimes it's realizing that other people share in that vision too. Mm-hmm. And and maybe some of our policies and, and ways we've traditionally um, approached projects and things like that might not really be lining up with the, the vision that we've ultimately set. So, so that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a great point. Yeah. Placemaking is really, it, it's not a, not a one size fits all thing yeah. the, the league doesn't want to tell all of our communities to do things the same way. We want to help you set the table and bring people to it. It's um, you know, our CEO, Dan Gilmartin likes to say, we want to host the party, not be the party. <laughs> so we've, we've got to bring all our residents together, bring all of our businesses and our institutional partners together and sort of have that conversation, not lecture them on, on what the right way to do things is necessarily. Sure. Sure. Love that approach. Yeah, for sure. Well, Murph, thank you so much for your candor and your insight today. This was so much fun. And uh, we appreciate all that you and the league does for communities like us all over Michigan. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to getting up there soon and checking out the coffee scene. Yeah. Oh. Excellent. <laughs> there are lots of opportunities. We will be your tour guides. Don't you worry. For sure. So that's all for this installment, but we'll be back next month with another episode and more updates on the Buttles and Indian Corridor Improvement Project. See you soon and slow down. This has been Word on the Streets, a podcast created by the City of Midland, Michigan and produced by the MCTV Network. For more information on this podcast or to learn more about the Buttles and Indian Corridor Improvement Project, visit cityofmidlandmi.gov corridors.